0: Welcome to Hallel Fellowship, found on the internet at Hallel.info, that's halle We hope you are encouraged by the following recorded Bible study to look deeper into every word that proceeds from the mouth of God, and how they were lived out in the life of Yeshua HaMashiach, often called Jesus the Christ. Are these uh, instructions for the tabernacle offerings, are they anachronisms, just basically curiosities of history, uh, vestiges of the path that was a path to God years and years ago but is no longer that path anymore, and it's really just a curiosity for a museum? Or is it something that is eternal? And you know questions like how do we bring these offerings here today? Good question. These offerings are presented in huge detail today. And you know why are these offerings a soothing aroma to the Lord? So that's really a key p- aspect to this because when we look at this we finished out the book of Shemot or Exodus. So the question is well why are we here? And one of the key things that we saw when we were going through exodus or shemot we are here with the tabernacle with the mishkan the dwelling place of god because we are to enter his presence in fact when you when you look at the time from exodus 1920 so right there at sinai presenting the 10 commandments all the way down through the end of chapter 40 the end of the book it is really a gigantic chiasm now chiasm, or as it is in Hebrew, at bash for at, the aleph and the tav being the first and last parts, and bash for the second, and second to the last parts. It is a part where in a literary structure that's very, very, very common throughout the Bible, where you have these elements. You ever wonder when you're reading along and you read passages, and it's like, well, I just read that a little while ago, it was worded almost the same way. Well, that's a good hint that you are dealing with a chiasm or an at structure, meaning that this is put together in a way to focus your attention on a particular point in Scripture. Now, these these or these chiasms can be small, short. They can be just a few verses long. They can be a chapter long, or in this case, they could be, you know... <laughs> Half a book, sometimes even an entire book, as we'll be looking at with the book of Esther, as uh, Daniel some years ago it talked about how the whole, pretty much the whole book of Esther is one gigantic chiasm and pointing toward <laughs> the passage that we know very well from the book of Esther about, you know, you may have been. Raised up into royalty for such a time as this. That's what the whole book seems to be structured to point toward. So the latter half of Exodus, structured to point, because you think about it, it's the bookends are clouds and clouds. At Sinai, the cloud descends upon the mountain, Moshe goes up into the cloud. How does Exodus end? The cloud comes down on the Mishkan. Moshe, basically it's in reverse order. Moshe has to, and everybody else has to get out of it because God moves in and everybody who has been working on the Mishkan has to get out. So when you start working back, 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 back toward the stuff that does not repeat, where it points to is golden calf and what we see from the cloud in the first end there at Sinai builds up to this point of, you know, presenting who God is and then smack dab in the middle, golden calf. And then working back out, it's like, okay, that was a very low point. God at the first point presented who he was, the 10 words, the 10 commandments, the testimony, the tablets of the testimony, who God is, what he's all about then descends down into the golden calf, low point, builds back up out of that into the construction of the Mishkan, the tabernacle, until finally the dwelling place is now mobile. It's no longer at a mountain. It is now mobile, and it will be going with the people. But smack dab right in the middle, golden calf. And what is a huge lesson of the golden calf? Well, we have to learn how God wants to re- us to relate to Him on His terms, not on what we think God wants us to relate to. Because you know, when you we've looked at the golden calf experience, this was you could say bolting on a whole bunch of stuff. There's you know, some views that it could have come from. Egyptian practices could have come from Canaanite practices. Regardless, this was man's view of how we should worship. Maybe even using some terminology. Uh, you know, this is the God who took you out. This is the Elohim who took you out of Egypt, and that they were celebrating a festival. Well, the point was was who really was the one who took them out of Mitzrayim. Is it the same sort of one that all the other down in Egypt, up in Canaan and all kinds of surrounding areas, the way that they worship their gods? Was it that kind of deity who took them out or something quite, quite different? In fact, one that they met at the mountain was telling them, yeah, I'm not worshiped with something you can see, something that you've built that say, this is our God. This is our Elohim who took us out. In fact, specifically saying in those Ten Commandments, no, don't build something, some representation of what you think. This Elohim who took you out of the land of bondage, who this God was. So smack dab in the middle of this representation of who God is, You have the golden calf experience, and a key lesson to that is uh, don't just guess. Don't try to bolt on other ideas of who God is, but let me reveal who I am. And so thus, when you see at the end part of Shemot, the end part of Exodus, the cloud comes down, the people move out. And so the first verse of Vayikra, the first verse of Leviticus, you know, that's where we get the name of this passage from, Vayikrai. And he called out from the tabernacle. So this calling out from the tabernacle, calling out from the dwelling place in the Mishkan, in this dwelling place, was now, come to me. But let me show you how you come to me. How you come to me. Not just Wander in any way you you think about it. And we've seen it revealed with the whole explanation of the Mishkan back there in Exodus, that this is to be a dwelling place of God in the midst of the people. And that this was to be a pattern of the things that are going on in heaven represented down on earth. So thus, when we went through all of those archi- architectural and interior design details back in Shemot, back in Exodus, now we're getting into a whole lot of details related to ceremony and you could say <laughs> butchery in the process. But what are the key lessons that come out of this again? Because when you get down into the courtyard experience with where you normally dwell, the dwelling place of God, you move through things in the process. You move past the altar, and then going past that, the ministers of God, the koanim, the priests, then move past that, and when they go in and out of the tents, further toward the dwelling place of God, there are washing in the process. So, washing the hands, washing the feet. So, some things that we're going to encounter again and again in the book of Vayikra, in the book of Leviticus, are some key, key vocabulary, you might say. One of which is Karban. And Karban just is translated offering or gift. Kodesh, translated typically as holy. Tahor, translated usually as clean. And Tame translated usually as unclean. But as we saw when we were kind of going through the process there of the description of the various parts of the Mishkan, of the tabernacle, better ways to put this and be very helpful when we see that this type, these patterns that were shown to Moshe on the mountain, coming down into the everyday life of people, Better ways to really look at these is carbon. It strictly speaks from from in the Hebrew as the thing that approaches, that which approaches. So your offering is what is going to approach. Approach what? In the context, this is approaching toward the dwelling place of God. The kodesh, the people, various elements are set apart and they're set apart for and this is the context of this set apart for what set apart for the dwelling place of God and the things kind of the the sphere of influence of the dwelling place of God So thus you can see how this keeps getting applied in concentric circles going out from the dwelling place of God. Because the holiness of God, that which is set apart from and for, is to really do something. It's to go somewhere. It's to really transform that which was not set apart for to that which is set apart for. And as those concentric rings go out, that which will be set apart for, thus you see when the prophets say, you know, thus all the earth will be called holy. And you see that in the prophets where they talk about when we saw back in Ezekiel that there is this look at the messianic era where It is not just this little part inside of the Mishkan, inside of the tabernacle that is called most holy, but rather it is the whole place where the Mishkan sets and then going out most holy. But you see, something has to happen in the process of that. Because the one thing that keeps getting reinforced again and again, not only with the architecture and the furniture of the dwelling place of God, but also now we've been introduced to some of the ceremonies of entering toward the presence, of moving forward toward and approaching the presence of God, that there has to be some change that happens. There has to be a change. And then we say the carbon that which approaches. What do we hear a lot about with the animal aspects of that? What is kind of a common thing, not only, yes, has to be clean, it has to be fit to approach, unblemished, okay, no no problems with it. But blood. Yes. Blood poured out. And one of the things that we learn as we're going to go through Vaikra. we learned back in Genesis, was about what about the blood? Life. Life is in the blood. So, yes, Larry has a comment over there.
1: There's also the laying on of
0: hands. Yes, the laying on of hands. Which is not just putting your
1: sins on that animal. It's joining that animal in that sacrifice. Uh Aha.
0: So yes, it's joining that animal in that sacrifice. And you know, more specifically the the term that's not just you kind of just kind of just stand over here and kind of pat your hand on it. No, it's actually you lean on it is really what the what the um, term for it is. So just like with the glory of God, you know, strictly speaking in Hebrew, kavod means the weight of God. And what is weight? It's, you know, that, strictly speaking, it's the pull. The pull of a massive object on another object. So the gravity of God. The gravity of God pulling on you. So you are not just casually putting your hands on, you are leaning on, you're putting weight upon that. So if you're putting weight upon that what are you symbolically doing basically transferring yes you are you know because we have the, we have the term today it's uh, um they call it leaning into something you know lean in it has other connotations to that but the but the meaning of it and the intention of it is that you are to Not just kind of lean back, meaning you're just kind of observing, but lean in as if you're going to actually do something. You're paying attention. You are ready for action. Yes,
2: Bill. Is that like the song, Leaning?
0: Leaning Leaning, on
2: the everlasting
0: arms? Leaning, Mm, leaning, leaning on on the everlasting arms. Yes. And And that's kind of the interesting aspect of it, is that you are not only just leaning as in you know, transferring something in, but leaning as in resting on something that is dependable. So that is a, that's a very interesting aspect to that as well, because you are, just think, you know, if you lean on something, what are you assuming that is going to carry you? That's going to support, you know, one of the things when I was in college and, you know, they start throwing all kinds of things to kind of shake you up in your belief systems. um, I was getting a little bit shaken in belief about God. And this one fantastic, um, one fantastic professor of Old Testament told me, he says, you know, you're losing faith. Oh, where are you standing right now? I was like, I'm standing in this room. No, where in three dimensions are you standing? I'm on the third story of a building.
3: Are you concerned? He asked me. I'm concerned about what? That you're going to fall. No. Why? He asked me.
0: Well, I trust that this floor I'm standing on is not going to give way. And he told me, now you have your answer. So you're wondering about trust. You're wondering about faith. So that kind of thing. We trust. We have all kinds of faith all the time. You know, when you when you look at statistics, you'd be crazy to go out on that road. You just look at bald statistics. But no, we have trust in various things. That you know. That's this. A uh, moving contraption that we're in is going to protect us if anything does happen, and that those uh, statistics are not going to apply to us in this given day. So, yes, Rose
3: is it trust and
0: obey. Oh, yes, trust but and obey, obey no is a really way great to be yes. happy in Jesus. But to That's trust right. and obey, the trust and obey. But that trust and obey is something that is learned over time, and you can feel more comfortable leaning on the everlasting arms time after time because you know that those everlasting arms are dependable over time and one of the things that we've talked about it many times past about the transformation of avraham the transformation of yaakov the transformation of yitzhak into people who were you know you read some of their accounts about uh their um relying on the the whole oh she's my sister excuse to try to get out of a jam to actually trusting so that was something a transformation that took time it took time for them to learn to trust the promises that those promises that the Lord had given about making this great nation, was it actually involved them surviving to <laughs> bring about this great nation, the, the great next generations that were going to come? You know, and as it was talked about there in the letter to Hebrews, chapter 11, it's like, you know, what was Avraham trusting in you know, when his son was there upon the altar that he built? that the Lord was able to do whatever to bring the promise through Yitzhak, even if he had to resurrect him. So thus, he was able to move forward with uh, entrusted in the instructions he
4: was given. Yes. To say something very profound happened when I was studying that came to mind is that, um, you know, for all of us, we're trusting and we're having faith in something we can't even see. We only have a document and we believe. And um, Christ said um, that the kingdom of God is here, but it does not come with observation. Like if we're waiting for something, we're not going to see it because it's already here. You know, when he said that, the kingdom of God does not come with observation. Mm. That's really pr- profound because we're trusting us that study the word of God that. You know, we're leaning into everything that we've been studying for however many years each of us have been here, that we're trusting that these documents are accurate, that we will be spending time in eternity as long as we can confess our sins, rely on, lean into him, trust yes. him, transfer our, our forgiveness, claim the blood. Mm.
0: And that the realm of God is in the repeated term over and over and over again, va'ed. And strictly speaking, it's like, you know, toward the horizon and beyond. So we translate it forever and ever, but truly it, it just means to the horizon, you know, to the world and beyond, to the edge of where you can see and beyond that. And thus you can see where you have Hebrews chapter 11 starts, that what? Is faith the evidence of things that you can see? And you know you get the full uh, prospectus and you've read the whole prospectus and go, oh, maybe I'll, maybe I'll uh, decide to believe in God today after I read all the disclosures and documentation. Is that, is that the way it's revealed? No. Faith is the evidence of what? Things unseen. And then it goes on through the rest of the chapter to describe all the situations of the great patriarchs of the Tanakh who went on, even though they did not see the destination of where they were going. And that is really also a part of what we're looking at here today with the Purim story of looking out to beyond, because Mashiach was that which was going to go beyond. And you would wonder, well, how could the Lord save and bring the Mashiach to be a descendant, to be a
3: a son, a descendant of David? How could that be? Jerusalem destroyed,
0: the temple destroyed, the people thrown off into other nations. Occupied by other nations. How could that possibly be? Then, when as we go through the book of Esther here today, oh, death sentence. You people conspired, they're gonna just wipe everybody out. How could that be? How is the Mashiach gonna come out of this? In the Maccabean era, how is that gonna happen? You know, it's either gonna be assimilated away or snuffed out of existence, all the true believers of God. Yes. So you see these, these pivot points in time where you say, which way are you going to go? Are you going to fall toward safety and security? Or are you going to fall toward trust, toward faith, to believe in the one who is le'alam Vaed, out over the horizon beyond where you can see? that's actually going to be the way it goes so when you see the various offerings that are presented here on our passage here today and as in the passages that we'll be picking up next time and going through the book of veicra some of the things that you see here you get the kind of Perhaps three buckets, sort of. There's other offerings in here, but three interesting buckets of offerings is the olah offering, the burnt, uh, translated offering as the burnt offering. And then you have the shelamim offering, or translated often as the peace offering. And then you have the chatat offering, often translated as the sin offering. And some interesting things that people have observed over time is, you know, who gets to eat what with the Ola offering, the burnt offering, who gets to eat from that? No one. No one. The altar. The altar gets to eat from it. And also, it is a soothing aroma
3: before the Lord, all going up. Yes. Yes uh i I hear all the time from
2: various ones that oh, the law's been nailed to the cross are these the laws they're hmm. talking about or are they talking about the Ten Commandments that's been supposedly nailed to the cross
0: it de- It depends on who you might be uh talking to on that on whether they view that as being um, the Ten Commandments, or perhaps even a subset of the Ten Commandments or such, there are some that will say, you know, no, Ten Commandments are important. Those are the things that 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 persist, that go on. And then there are others that say, well, certain parts of the Ten Commandments persist and then go on. Maybe, you know, some get dropped out. Maybe the, the one on the, the Sabbath Commandment, maybe uh, some others related to idols, maybe those fall out too. Um, some others they follow but the rest of them will go on and some will say well unless it's actually repeated in the uh, gospels as being a commandment then it is not something that goes on and continues so there's various subsets of of believers that will go one way or the other on that so it it can really depend on who you're talking about but there is Um, a common teaching that there are certain things, and often what we're talking about here today in Leviticus and the things related to the tabernacle, and often going on into extensions of the appointed times of God, the festivals, those being kind of grouped into uh, what has been in theological circles uh, termed the ceremonial law, and then the moral law. And the moral law is usually the Ten Commandments. And then some others that a group may throw in there, like they may throw in um, your uh, your sexuality things, they might throw into that one. They may also throw tithe into that one as well, into the moral law versus the, the ceremonial law. And then they might throw uh, some of the other ones Even the Ten Commandments, like the things related to uh, the Sabbath, often is thrown into the ceremonial law. And then also the one on idols sometimes is thrown into the ceremonial law as well. So that is kind of where... So it's one of those common things where um, you really have to start a dialogue to figure out what camp somebody is in to figure out where they are. But there is some groupings of it, and sometimes roughly it's the ceremonial law versus the moral law. But that's one of the beginning parts of conversation, because when you actually read the law, that is a man-made distinction between ceremonial law and moral law. Because as we're looking at today, there were some moral aspects that are wrapped in with the ceremony of the carbon, that which approaches, that which is restored, that which is reconnected back into, into uh, your relationship with God. So people have tried to distinguish them into two buckets, but scripture does not do that. So it's a conversation started to go on to say, okay, well, they are in the word blended together as being a part of a cohesive whole. But the point is, why are they, and what is the point in that? What is the morality that's wrapped up in the ceremony, and what is the ceremony that teaches about morality? So that's a it's a very interesting point because it actually touches on the haftarah reading here today. The haftarah reading is in Isaiah chapter forty-three, starting in verse twenty-one. Blessed are you, Lord, our God, King of the universe, who chose good prophets and was pleased with their words, which they spoke in truth. Blessed are you, Lord, who chose the Torah, Moshe his servant, Israel his people, and the prophets and apostles of truth and righteousness. Amen. So, Isaiah chapter 43, starting verse 21. The people whom I form for myself will declare my praise. Yet you have not called on me, O Jacob, but you have become weary of me, O Israel. You have not brought to me the sheep of your burnt offerings, nor have you honored me with your sacrifices. I have not burdened you with offerings, nor wearied you with incense. You have not brought me, uh, you have brought me not sweet cane with money, nor have you filled me with the fat of your sacrifices rather you have burdened me with your sins you have wearied me with your iniquities I even I am the one who wh- wipes away wipes out your transgressions for my own sake and I will not remember your sins put me in remembrance let us argue our case together state your cause that you may be proved right you are first Father, forefathers sinned, and your spokesmen have transgressed against me. So I will pollute the princes of the sanctuary, and I will consign Jacob to the ban and Israel to revilement. But now listen, O Jacob, my servant, and Israel, whom I have chosen. Thus says the Lord, who made you and formed you from the womb, who will help you. Do not fear, O Yaakov, my servant, and you, Yeshurun, whom I have chosen, for I will pour out water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit on your offspring and my blessing on your descendants, and they will spring up among, uh, among the grass like poplars by streams of water. This one will say, I am the Lord's, and that one will call on the name of Yaakov, and another will write on his hand, Belonging to the Lord. And I will name uh, Israel's name with honor. And thus says the Lord, the King of Israel and his Redeemer, the Lord of hosts, I am the first and I am the last, and there is no God besides me. Who is like me? Let him proclaim and declare it. Let him recount it to me in order from the time that I established the ancient nation and let them declare to them the things that are coming and the events that are going to take place. Do not tremble and do not be afraid for I, um, have I not long since announced it to you and declared it and you are my witnesses. Is there any God besides me? Or is there any other rock? I know of none. Those who fashion a graven image are all of them futile, and their precious things are of no profit. Even their witnesses fail to see or know, so that they will be put. The man shapes iron into a cutting tool and does his work over the coals, fashioning it with hammers and working it with his strong arm. He also gets hungry and his strength fails. He drinks no water and becomes weary. Another shapes wood. He extends the measuring line. He outlines it with red chalk. He works it with planes and outlines it with the compass and makes it like the form of a man, like the beauty of a man, so that it may sit in a house. Surely he cuts cedars for himself and takes a cypress or an oak and raises it for himself among the trees of a forest. He plants a fir and the rain makes it grow. Then it becomes something for a man to burn. So he takes one of them and warms himself and also makes a fire to bake bread. He also makes a god and worships it. Uh, he it, um, He makes it a graven image and falls down before it. Half of it he burns in the fire, and over this half he eats meat as he roasts a roast and is satisfied. He also warms himself and says, Aha, I am warm. I have seen the fire. But the rest of it he makes into a god, his graven image. He falls down before it and worships. He also prays to it and says, Deliver me, for you are my god. They do not know, nor do they understand, for he has smeared over their eyes so that they cannot see, and their hearts so they cannot comprehend. No one recalls, nor is there knowledge or understanding to say, have I burned half of it in the fire and have also baked bread over its coals? I roast meat and eat it, and then I make the rest of it into an abomination. I fall down before a block of wood. He feeds on ashes, a deceived heart. He has turned him aside, and he cannot deliver him, nor can he say, Is there not a lie in my right hand? Remember these things, O Yaakov and Yisrael, for you are my servant. I have formed you. You are my servant, O Yisrael. You will not be forgotten by me. I have wiped away your transgressions like a thick cloud in your Sins like a heavy mist. Return uh, to me, for I have redeemed you. Shout for joy, O heavens, for the Lord has done it. Shout joyfully, you lower parts of the earth. Break forth into a shout of joy, you mountains. O forest and every tree in it. For the Lord has redeemed Yaakov, and in Israel he showed forth his glory. Thus says the Lord your Redeemer, and the one who has formed you from the womb, I, the Lord, and the Maker of all things, stretching out the heavens by myself and spreading out the earth all alone. Amen. Alright, so one of the key aspects here, where one of the key questions that you should be asking in this when we go back into uh, chapter 43, and it says there, okay, the people whom I form my, for myself will declare my praise. Yet you have not called on me, O Jacob. You have become weary of me, O Israel. You have not brought to me the sheep of your burnt offerings, nor have you honored me with your sacrifices. So with that, you're like, well, what happened? Uh, what
3: point in time is this talking about? You haven't brought them to me.
0: So, one of the things, remember the context of Yeshiyahu when he's speaking, what point in history is this referring to? This is referring to the point in Israel's history of
3: the exiles. So, in exile,
0: what happened before? The destruction of Yerushalayim and with it, the destruction of the temple. So, the place, the Mishkan of a sort that time, the one built of stone, that is gone. So, thus, how are they able to bring any offerings? They could not.
3: So, they were not able to bring any offerings.
0: And a very interesting question. All right, well, then, what do you do? In the situation, this is very similar to what you see in the letter to the Hebrews. Letter to the Hebrews, when it talks about these are things which are fading away and are about to disappear, it, the letter to Hebrews is placed in the late 60s AD. Now, if you remember history, 70 AD was when the temple was destroyed when the Romans came in and destroyed Jerusalem again, and destroyed the temple. Again, that was the second temple. I guess you might say uh, in inversions you know, <laughs> it might have been like, what, 2.5 or something? Because, you know, the second temple really was rebuilt in the time of whom? Ezra and Nehemiah. So they came back, reestablished it. And then they just kept getting built and, you know, it was the time of the Maccabees in between, so you know, it was rededicated. And then you had the whole Herod building program, which he built a magnificent structure and then built out the platform around the structure to uh, encompass it. So it became something quite bigger than it was before. But the same question remained as it was in exile. And a question that was going to come for Israel when the temple would be destroyed. And that second version 2.5 or whatever was destroyed in 70 AD. How then do you bring the offerings? How then do you bring the offerings? And one of the things that you see in the letter to the Hebrews was talking about shadows that these things are shadows. So we get back to where we were with what the pattern was shown to Moshe on the mountain.
3: So the question remains then
0: is, what then are the offerings? What are these karbonot, these things that approach? What are they?
3: What were they? They
0: were the types and the shadows of things that were coming. So whether they were in place or whether they were not in place, the same things were going. The same things should have been going within the hearts of the people. So thus, the people are sitting there in exile. They have no temple. They have no tabernacle. Yet the Lord is like,
3: where are your offerings? Where are your offerings? And you know, you are weary of me. You are weary of me. So,
0: a very interesting thing is like, okay, israel I've given you a time out in exile. You don't have to bring them anymore because you can't. You can't physically go through the ceremonies related to the Mishkan, to the temple anymore
3: but you're still weary of me?
0: So, thus, the same thing was happening in exile as happened before the exile. The heart of the people, the heart of what was involved with the goings-on in the temple, with the offerings, was not happening before exile and not happening during exile. The heart of the matter is what mattered, it has always mattered, will always matter related to the things going on with the tablo- tabernacle, going on with the temple. So, thus, you get back to the passage where
3: we're at here today. So,
0: the burden of the tabernacle was not there, but then you're still tired of God. Because have you not learned, Israel, what the point of all the offerings was about? This is what we talked about earlier, about entering toward the presence of God. Do you not care, Israel, about moving toward the presence
3: of God? Yes, Larry.
1: Where He says that it's for him, these sacrifices, we always think it's for us to forgive us for our sins. But actually, he said it's for him, so Correct. that he can find the people that are willing to obey and be transformed by him, so he can live
0: with them. Yes, because one of the things that we were talking about earlier with the olah, the burnt offering, with the shalomim, the peace offering, with the chatat, the sin offering, you think about who eats what. No one eats the whole burnt offering. That just Totally goes up. The Shalomim offering, who eats
3: that? And
0: the ones who are bringing it. So the priests and those who are bringing it eat that together. Who's eating the Chatat or the sin offering?
3: The Kohanim are eating those.
0: So who are the kohenim? the priests? Who are they representing? They are representing God here on earth. They are the servants, the representatives of God. They minister, they take the gifts back and forth. They work together with the people. So you have in your passage toward the dwelling place of God, what then do you have to establish first with the presence of God?
3: You have to get this like connection going. because
0: remember back in the garden, you know the, the whole thing of eating the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and bad, you were transgressing into God's territory, because where did God say the domain of man was in the garden? mankind?
3: Everywhere but. That tree. So the
0: domain of God was that tree. It said, this is my domain. Everywhere else, somewhere else. So thus, when the first couple goes to the tree, they're transgressing into God's domain. They go in to eat from god's domain to eat of what was not theirs You know, you see how the passage ended today it ended about lots of transgressions you know you swear oaths that you don't mean to keep you testify falsely meaning you say stuff that you don't mean you know and on and on it goes and it's like okay these are presumptuous sorts of things first it goes into the things that are unintentional but when you become aware of it you realize uh-oh It's like if you wander into God's domain and you realize, "Uh uh-oh, I'm in God's domain, I'm not supposed to be here, what do you do? You get on out, unless you get the invitation in. But if you presumptuously go in, that's something completely different. And then if you are invited in and to God's domain, then what it that you want to do you want to remain there you want to be like what david prayed that i would forever dwell in the in the dwelling place of god to live in his courts day by day is that where kings are supposed to hang out
3: there you know hang out with the ark of the covenant is that what the kings are supposed to do no but that's
0: where the heart of david dwelled so thus, you see like with the olah offering, that that is a person who is completely consumed up. So thus, you're seeing then when Yeshua is talking about what happens when you have a breakdown of your situation. He's talking about Matthew 18. And he says, you know, you go up to the altar with the kind of a Shalomim offering, and you're going to say, hey, there. We're having a jolly good time here, you and God. But no, there's something, there's a problem here. That someone has something against you. So you need to go back and deal with that hatat, the sin, the transgression sort of thing, where there have been boundaries that have been crossed over. You need to deal with that first. Then you can move on to the area of the Shalemim offering. And then you can move on to the era of the Ola offering because there when you are completely, quote, burned up, there is what? There's nothing to hide anymore. You're right back in the garden again with nothing to hide anymore. So, thus, we, we keep talking about the tabernacle as being a lot of what's going back to the garden of Eden is all about in the dwelling place of God. And a lot of what we're seeing here with these offerings, with the carbon is a part of getting back to that again. And then when we see, you know, a lot of people over the centuries have noted that you've got these gardens at the bookends of history in the beginning and in the day of the Lord and in the world made new that you have this tree of life again.
3: Yes, uh, Bill. Uh, this what you were
2: talking about earlier reminded me of uh, during this COVID and this was shut
3: down here. I didn't know what to do with my tithe, and there was no answer to how long it's going to last.
2: So I started giving it to a couple of different organizations that feed the poor. I didn't know what else to do. with it. If I kept if I it too long, I'd be spending it on myself. So I started giving it to them. Now that this is back open, I have a place where I can bring my tithe. That had something to do with what you were talking about earlier.
3: Oh, about...
4: But how during the exiles, they couldn't bring their sacrifices, right? They were almost pent up like we, there's nowhere to go.
0: Yeah, right. But it's, it's one of those things that you just, you see a need there and you go and you, f- you fulfill the need. That's a part of, um, you know, what, when we get into Deuteronomy, when it talks about, you know, that you will always have the poor among you, but you do what? If you see a brother in need, you, you deal with it. So, that is a part of the way that God is talking about, not only just when you have problems between people, but when people have problems. You go and you deal with it. You don't wait for somebody else to take care of it. You work with whatever means that you have at any given time period, and you work with it. But That's really a whole part of the process of getting out beyond ourselves. So... (laughs) <laughs> yeah, lose any, lose any points. Yes.
5: Uh, yes, Alex. Yeah, I just thought it was interesting that even to this day, the Kohen are a cut above. Uh, a cut the above, rest yes. Of the tribe.
0: Yes. And see, I mean, that's really what it was always intended to be. And the Kohenim were always intended to be a. Part of the example, ones that were to not only minister, but you see later on in Israel's history, they were the teachers. They were to teach Israel. So when you have them, um, the prophets coming down hard upon the priesthood, why? Because the priesthood were leaving the people ignorant of who God was and what some of the issues were and where things were going astray. Who were the first people who were supposed to be speaking up? The ones that knew the word of God best, and were supposed to be teaching the people about this. Uh, yes.
6: Oh yeah. Um, the thing that comes to me is uh, is, uh, is, a Hab- is a Habakkuk that says, uh, "What is it that the Lord requires of you but to do justly, love mercy, and walk humbly with your God?" Yeah. Correct. Also, Abraham. You know, before the temple was even uh, established, and that he he sacrificed. But he wasn't. He wasn't. I don't know that God showed him. I think he he realized it, or somehow, or through Noah, or I don't know that. Oh, Noah came. <laughs> yeah. Anyway, <laughs> if you look back at all the other figures and in in, uh, in in his. In Israel's history, you know, you you see what they did when there was no sacrifice. Of course, sometimes some of them made their own, made their, <laughs> built their own temple. The other one was a great great grandson of Moses or something right. did that, right?
0: Yeah, they and see that's that's it was too
6: far away for him to get to, so <laughs> you just make my convenient one right here. Right.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Make your own. Make your own. And w- when you see archaeologically, that's that's exactly what people did, because they've dug up. Basically, people have made their own shrines that are styled sort of like the temple and even had inscriptions sort of like you know related to the name of god so people took the things related to god and tried to port them into everyday life but that's the issue was is that you know you were not then to worship like the the way that the nations did because you are then putting the creator of heaven and earth and molding the creator of heaven and earth on your own terms yes alex
3: not
5: simplistic about it all but what did they do with all the blood it just you know they had to move the altar or something at some point it's just
4: they had a drainage system Yeah, they
5: didn't. Did
0: they get into that in the design? Well, like when when you when you read like in uh, Josephus and some other contemporary writings of the time period, they talk a bit about what was going on, especially when you were starting to get into the period where you had like during Passover time period, and you had hundreds of thousands of lambs coming in at any given time period because then um we think of you know we when we see the movie the
5: one priest making the blood sacrifice well let me tell you there were a lot of cohen's dragging up a pretty good sized bull some days so um right that was a group effort too
0: yes yeah that's that's why you had the whole family taking care of of this particular aspect. And then beyond just the, the family of Aharon, then you had all the rest of the Levites that were kind of the support crew um, in, involved in the process of that. But one of the things that you see uh, as this passage goes on in verse 24, that instead of bringing the, bringing the offerings, which they couldn't because the tabernacle the temple was not there anymore with them in exile but what were they instead doing it's like well okay the you are not burdened quote burdened by the the offerings by the machinations of the tabernacle and the temple but what are you burdening you are burdening the Lord with iniquity, with your transgressions, with your sins. And you are missing the whole point of what the original tabernacle temple was supposed to be about. It was supposed to be about your transformation into somebody different. To say, I don't want to carry around these sins, transgressions, and iniquities anymore i don't want them to be carried around so your goal is to like move toward the presence of god because god is the one who is going to remove those and you see in this passage here in as it goes on in verse 25 i even i am the one who wipes out your transgressions for my own uh for my own sake and i will not remember your sins And that sounds a lot like what? The passage from an earlier prophet, leading up to the exiles in Jeremiah 31, where he is talking about this time where there would be a new covenant, new covenant with the house of Israel, and that the Lord would do what? New heart, new spirit, and remember those iniquities no more, to take these things and remove them. But what does that then require? And as that passage there, the New Covenant prophecy says, it's about everyone will know the Lord. Because they want to know the Lord. This is not just a casual Passing knowledge. Oh yeah, yeah. I I heard of him. That's that. That's that deity that's off there somewhere, doing something or other. But no, this is a knowing the Lord, and that the Lord then has taken your iniquities and will remember them no more, because you have done what you have offloaded them. You don't want them anymore. So, just like we were talking about with the tabernacle, the Lord was dwelling in the midst of the people. Not so, okay, we're, we're out doing our own thing, you know. There's that God there doing a thing in the middle, and maybe we'll go by and drop a line every now and then, go by and wave as we're passing by, go on to do our own thing. No, this is about... The Lord is going to be traveling with you. The Lord is going to be living with you. You want the Lord to live with you. Because remember, sandwiched between the cloud and the cloud, the golden calf. And after the golden calf, they realized, oh, no, we don't want to go that way anymore. So when the Lord was saying, I'm not going to dwell with you, I'll send somebody else. What was the cry of the people?
3: Go with us travel with
0: us so thus you see as we we move on into the other books here one of the prayers that when the cloud would lift up it's like oh lord go with us and then when they would stop oh return to us because why you want the lord to dwell with you so the lord made it quite clear that. The Lord is not going to dwell in the midst of people who are what? intent to go off into sins, transgressions, and iniquities. The Lord wants people who want to offload the sins, transgressions, and iniquities. Not live and wallow in them, but offload them. Yes,
1: Larry. Oh, yeah, you know, another facet I think of this is that like he said it's impossible for the blood of goats and bulls and yes to forgive sins. But that, and the master said, if you're going to the altar and you have something to have someone has ought against you, you go settle that first. Yes. Almost as if that's going to be their forgiveness when he forgives you for your, when you apologize to him or whatever you have to do. And then the Lord takes it away.
0: Because but, what happens in the process of you're going to do that? You have to transform yourself. Yes. And work with the other person as well. So, in the process of two people getting over their things between each other to come back together, thus, you are more like a, the people who want to get closer with God. So, just like, you know, again, that's the, the same kind of Kalva homer, homer, the light and heavy. So, The human aspect of it is just like two people who have got something against each other who want to get over it so they can what? Live together, work together in peace. So how much more then, if there is something between us and the creator of heaven and earth, would we want to get rid of the thing that's in between us? And one of the big lessons of Yom Kippur is that there are some things that are just beyond the unintentional things that move on into very, very willful iniquity. And that is something that is, takes a very deep transformation. And one of the things that you see in Yom Kippur is the fact that that is something that is really the Lord's work to get rid of and cover that. It's kind of like if you can't work out the
1: thing with the person you can see, yes. how are you going to work out the thing with the one you can't see?
0: Yes, and that was why that that instruction was was given, because you have to. Um, because we can quote play church all we want, and then go off and you know be a mobster the rest of the week, but no, that is not the model that we have in the Bible. Is the Mishkan, in the middle of the people. So when the Apostle Paul says, you know, you are a temple of the Spirit of God, meaning what? You are moving through life with the dwelling place of God. It's not like you just kind of set it on the shelf over there and go visit it, kind of pick it up, put it on like a coat every now and then. Like, you know, your, your, your special um, uh, holy yeah, your holy jacket, Your 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 dinner jacket you go to when you go to have dinner you put on your your holy jacket and head off no this is something that you wear throughout your entire life which is one of the symbols related to the tzitzitot is something to say hey remember remember who you are as the apostle paul puts it you know remember who you are and apostle yaakov puts it better it's like when you are like looking into a mirror and then go away and forget what you look like no we don't go through life like that we we don't want to be afraid of mirrors all the time we want to be people who every time we go through a mirror and go wow look at what god did there because i remember what i used to look like and i didn't like that but now i can look into a mirror and go wow Look at what God did there. That's fantastic.
5: Yes, Alex. Yeah, uh, but then again with Paul, you know, we don't really know what that thorn in his side was. We can assume it could be anything. Mm. And um, that's good because uh, my grace is sufficient to you. You (laughs) Yes. You know, you're a little weird. You're a little this. You're a little that. Hey, you might have to live with it, bro. Um, And that's it. Um, So, being purified hey god change me make me a really good guy you Well, know, you might just have to pray on that a lot yep every time that urge that whatever that problem you got uh, arises so that's that's
3: humanity yeah correct um yes deborah
4: Also, another thing, we are representing the king of the universe. We are little kingettes and we are supposed to be going around uh, showing love, being forgiving, you know, doing things that normal people wouldn't do, like open the door. And today, you know, forgiveness, we're representing our father. So we have to be uh, mindful of how we come across, too. It's important that we don't, you know, fly. You know, I remember I used to watch this one lady, she was a teacher on. TV and she said these people had bumper stickers and crosses and then they'd zoom in the parking spot and, you know, leave the cart out in the parking lot and uh, have their holy, holy things on. And then, you know, burst out in a terrible temper. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, when we behave that way, we have to recognize that it's not it's not right. You know what I mean? To For us to behave that way and say that we love the most high God. He's going to look and see how we treat each other. If I'm blowing my stack at my friend and they're looking at me like ooh, and you want to run from them, you know, we have to make sure that we apologize and say, oh, I'm sorry, you know, because we get frustrated. And if you recognize that quickly, you know, I did watch some teaching about when we behave um, poorly to others, we can manifest sicknesses within ourselves due to, you know, like, uh, um, like Miriam, when she they talked against Moses, um, I had heard some teaching that, um, you know, uh, what's a that it breaks out on us, the, the leprosy. Um, yeah. leprosy breaks out on us. And that's from our own making and doing by what we're speaking and what we're saying, you know. But God has designed us in a way that we can probably pretty much, uh, I mean, sin can come upon it. I mean, our discipline can come upon us. We bring upon ourselves. I, I would say, I've noticed for my own self is that, you know, when I know I'm not right, things manifest themselves.
3: Yeah. So be careful. I'll just add a thought that I'm thinking reconciliation consists of about four things. Mm. It's
0: uh, on the top side. It's, it's uh, anger. No, I forgot. I forgot already. Uh, Oh, anger and pride on the top side and on the bottom side is humility and forgiveness. Mm -hmm. So um, when you, when you're in that state, I think you have to, you have to think on those things. And move towards you know a higher level. Thank you. Yeah, which is which is why the um, aspect of humility comes in, and the example of uh, Moshe in his uh, being humble and willing to willing to change. Yes, uh, Pat, you uh, did you have a comment or a question? No. Okay, just add your. Uh, unmuted there, so I just was wondering if you had comment. Oh, I
3: guess I accidentally
0: unmuted. <laughs> oh, no problem. Yes, Alex? One of the uh, most
5: enjoyable days I had at my old Episcopal church, or not days, but uh, Sundays, was when uh, Duffy's, uh, the rehab place that's been in Calistoga for years, I don't know if you know it, AA, drug, drug-addicted people, usually the court sends them there, of course, uh, but they'd come in the bus, 20 of them, and I... I feel more comfortable sitting back there in that section with the people up front who are obviously uh, better than me. They, they don't have bad thoughts and things like that. So the holier-than-thou thing does bug me, I'm, I'm afraid to say, if you haven't noticed that yet. But, and it's also very grounding to reach out to your brother. By, by knowing that you are not, uh, you don't belong in a front pew, I can, I can approach anybody.
0: Amen to that. Amen to that. Yeah, that's that's one of the the great things is to be around people who are truly serious uh, about wanting to turn around. We're going through you know one of the uh, Christian twelve step groups because uh, at least that you get a um, you could say uh, the the systematic approach of um, recognizing your bankruptcy as a, as a person, you know, truly reaching that realization that you see in Romans chapter 7. Because truly, this passage that we just saw in the Haftarah, its parallel is Romans 7 and Romans 8. That should have been the realization. Romans 7 should have been the realization of the people, wow, have we fallen. We have really fallen to the point of being... So far away from God that the things that we should be bringing and should be rebuilding our relationship together, we're just really, really far away from. And I mean, we're far away from the land. We have no temple, no priesthood in action. We're out somewhere else. We're not even in the land anymore. But then also being weary of God in that process. But being weary of God is something that we should be moving to the aspect of we realize how far we have gone. If you're weary of God, you're not realizing that you've gone away from God at all. You're like, oh, good grief. Well, when will this end? Because I want to get back to doing my own thing again to the aspect of what Romans 7 is saying when you see what god's standard is when you see who god really is you realize that's where i want to be but wow am i far away from that so thus when you see as this haftarah goes on and it says like there in chapter 44 And it goes on and, and it talks about, uh, like in verse two, and it says, "And you, Yeshurun, whom I have chosen." So Yeshurun, we we meet this term in Deuteronomy. Yeshurun is a, a nickname for Israel; it means the upright one. Well, <laughs> kind of a far cry from the upright one in Israel's current position. But this is just like with the the ends of the clouds in Exodus from the, the cloud that Moshe walked into to the cloud that was onto the Mishkan and the tabernacle in between there was the golden calf. So the descent down to the golden calf, the ascent out of the golden calf out the other end to the Mishkan. So this is the promise that is being put forward to a people that are far away from being the Yeshrun that the Lord sees them as. But again, the Lord sees Israel potential as Yeshrun. So just like we may see ourselves up against the standard of God, just like in Romans says Romans seven says, and compare ourselves to that and go, What wicked man I am. Who can save me from this body of death? But then it moves on to Praise be God who then will deliver me out. And Romans 8 goes into the aspect of what? The Spirit of God being poured out upon you. That you were dry and thirsty. But you have to realize that you're dry and thirsty. Because if you think that, well, I don't need anything. I don't need the Spirit of God. You know, you don't realize that you are dried up ground. So when you realize that you're dried up ground and you need a good rain, then that rain comes. And then when you go on to uh, into this (laughs) interesting passage in chapter 44 of Isaiah, verse 9, and it goes on through the end of our passage here in, in verse 23, that is a chiasm and a very interesting one. Because as it moves in, they're talking about uh, how silly it is, how foolish it is to go after idols that are made from things that you create. Right in the middle, it's a strange place that, that it, it goes into the middle of it because it actually um, it goes into the middle of this passage here in... Verse 14 of uh, chapter 44 says, Surely he cuts cedars for himself, takes a cypress or an oak, and raises it up for himself among the trees. He plants a fir, and the rain makes it grow. Anything strike you odd about all that? So it's talking in the front end and the back end
3: of this particular passage about getting the wood. Yes, but what's that key phrase in there?
0: The rain makes it grow. And that is what we just saw at the front end of this passage. And you see it on as Isaiah continues on with this passage, uh, moving on from there, is that this person is making an idol out of a tree. Yes, yeah, doesn't belong to him. He, even though he plants the tree, can he, done any, can he do anything further beyond that? Yes. How the, how the seed has built into it, the you know the software so to speak with the hardware to then make it actually do something to to grow and and move on and be a tree out of it and the rain falling upon it hugely important i mean here are we today with our artificial irrigation just think we are the masters we are the god of agriculture Well, the problem is, is what happens when we run out of water for our irrigation? Well, suddenly we're not the masters of our agriculture anymore. So we need more rain to fall into our aquifers or into our reservoirs to get water for our irrigation. So we're right back to where we started again. Whether the rain is falling directly out of the sky, directly onto the crop, or whether it's going to an aquifer or a reservoir, and we pull it out and pump it to where it needs to go. We just still realize that we're at the mercy of it. And even when it gets there, it is the mechanism that the creator of heaven and earth has put into whatever crop it is, whether it's this tree, or it is some sort of grain or whatever, we want to grow, that then there is growth that comes out of it. So do we realize that that is what is going on? Or do we like make an idol or a god out of it, out of the things that the creator has made, and ignore the creator in the process and just move on with it? Like, oh yeah, okay, creator, thank you. Thank you for the the seeds. Thank you for the tree. And I got it from here. And now I'm going to make a God after my own fashioning. So that's one of the lessons here in the process. The lesson has been the same from the very beginning, from the garden going back to the garden in the day of the Lord. It's always been the same. It's where do things come from? If we realize where they come from, if there is then instructions in the process that there is a domain that is ours and a domain that is not ours, that we respect those domains, what is ours and what is not ours, and especially what is God's domain, and we treat that with respect, but we want to have, we want to have that dialogue. We want to have that relationship with the creator of heaven and earth. And if that relationship gets damaged, we need to figure out why it's damaged. What happened to damage the situation? And how do we get back? And especially pay attention if the creator of heaven and earth reveals to us how things got damaged and how you make it back in the process. So hopefully that really gives us an an interesting picture into what we see here that looks like instructions about butchery, architecture, interior design, that really this is just talking about how heaven is working here on earth and then working within us and between us and other people in the process with the whole goal of the dwelling place of God being with mankind, whether it's the garden, whether it's the Mishkan, whether it's in the Mashiach, whether it is the world made new. That goal throughout time. So I'll close things out here uh, with a blessing over this reading here of the Haftarah. Blessed are you, Lord our God, King of the Universe. "'Rock of all the worlds, righteous in all generations, "'the Almighty, the faithful one, who says and does, "'who speaks and fulfills, for all his words are true and right. "'Dependable are you, Lord, our God, dependable are your words, "'and not one of your words is ever retracted unfulfilled. "'For you are the Almighty, the King, who is dependable and merciful. "'Blessed are you, Lord, the Almighty, who is dependable in all his words.'" Have compassion on Zion, for it is the home of your, our life, and the one whose soul is humiliated delivers speedily in our days. Blessed are you, Lord, who causes Zion to rejoice with her children. Cause us to rejoice, Adonai, our God, and Eliyahu, the prophet, your servant, and with the kingdom of the house of David, your anointed. Speedily may he come and cause our heart to exult. Upon his throne no stranger will sit, and others will no longer inherit his honor. For by your holy name you swore to him that his light will never be extinguished. Blessed are you, Lord, shield of David, for the Torah, for the divine service, for the prophets and apostles, and for this Sabbath day, which you gave us, Lord, our God, for holiness, for rest, for honor and glory. For all this, Lord, our God, we thank you and bless you. Blessed be your name by the mouth of all the living, continually forever. Blessed are you, Lord, sanctifier of the Shabbat. Amen. Well, Father God, we thank you for giving us your words and for giving us your spirit, for giving us the instructions of all your servants down through a long period of time. And Father, we thank you for transforming us more into your character and for showing us who you are through your Torah, through the Mashiach. Father, we thank you for covering over our sins, transgressions, and iniquities.
3: In his name, amen.
0: You've been listening to a discussion at Halel Fellowship, if you would like to hear more discussions or if you have any questions, visit the website at halel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O, Hallel.info.